listening to a Sanctuary Church podcast. Hey, how, how have you liked prayer meetings this week? Praying every day? Fasting? Yeah, it's groovy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a great prayer meeting yesterday morning at, uh, at Collingwood Park. And um, yeah, we, afterwards, we did, we did something for the community. One, two of the businesses in our community down there had been robbed in the week before. And so we picked up the prayer meeting and moved it after we'd finished our hour of praying. We moved it into a cafe and we spent lots of money and we helped that business out, helped both businesses out. Actually, the two were side by side. So one was a bakery, one was a cafe, which happened to be handy. You know. So when, when, see, we, when we bring restoration, we bring it in a lot of ways, don't we? as a church. We can do things like that in the community to, to bring the love of Jesus into people's lives. It's not that hard. Hey, yeah. good. Okay. Oh, you sound like you've come to hear some preaching. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a story in the, in the book of Acts. It's, it's a really great story. It it's, happens not long after the church is actually born. It happens not long after the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And, and it's, it's in Acts chapter 3. And Peter and John, two heroes of the Bible, are walking up to the temple. And there's this place there called the Gate Beautiful. Why didn't they call it the Beautiful Gate? Just, but anyway, that's another story. And there's this lame beggar laying there. And, and he, he, wants, he wants money off them. And he, he asks them for money. And, and Peter and John say, we're pastors. We don't have any money. <laughs> but what we do have, what we do have, we're going to give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And, and they help the guy to his feet. And he walks. He walks. Immediately, there's a, there's a miraculous healing happens. And they go into the temple, and this guy's following them. He's, he's deliriously happy. And the Bible says that he walked into the temple behind them, walking and leaping and praising God. And the three things that happened there are significant. We can gloss over that. But he went walking because he was physically healed, leaping for joy, he was emotionally healed, and praising God, he was spiritually healed. Wholeness had come to this man. That's what salvation is. That's what it means to be saved. Wholeness. We so often think that it's merely made right with God. We're made right with God and we, and we hang on until after a while, by and by, someday on the other side, we'll meet Jesus in heaven and then everything will be all right. But no, God wants to bring wholeness into our lives, progressively moving us from brokenness to wholeness. Can you say amen? Good, good, good. There's another occasion where, where Jesus heals 10 lepers. And, and they run off, they're happy that they're healed, but one of them comes back and he says, thank you. He says, oh, that's great. And Jesus said, you know, why did only one come back? Why did one who was not even a Jew come back? And he says, go on your way. Your faith has made you whole. What he, what he actually says there is your faith has made you sozo, which is the word that we see translated as saved, but it actually means more than saved. It means made whole. It means physical, emotional, and spiritual healing. That's what that word is all about. Your faith has made you sozo. When God restores us, he wants to restore the whole individual. 
Let's just, um, we're going to read a scripture in a moment from 2 Timothy, but let's just, before we do, let's just commit the morning to prayer. Father God, we just thank you for your established written word, Lord God. We thank you for the power that is in that, Lord God. We just pray that it would, it would seep into our, our psyches today, Lord God, and that we would receive from you something that, that will change us, Lord, and that you would bring forth the new wine in our lives. In Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, of love, and of a sound mind. Continuing in that same vein, what that means is, what a sound mind means is a saved mind. The word there is, comes again from the word sozo. See, we so often see people in church and outside of church whose minds are not sound whose minds are not whole, and whose minds are not saved. That doesn't mean that they're not saved, but they struggle on the battlefield of the mind. There's a recurring theme in our communities. People feel paralysed because they're facing so much stress and anxiety and have a constant struggle with depression and despair. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Not overcoming anxiety and depression necessarily, but moving towards biblical wholeness moving towards biblical wholeness. Even people in their early 20s are suffering from panic attacks. Would it interest you to know that the average high school student today experiences the same level of anxiety as a psychiatric patient from the 50s? That's, that's actually arresting that stat. See, stress, pressure and breakdown are an issue in our society. Stress teachers cost our nation, cost taxpayers, $40 million a year. And I'm not picking on teachers. They have a very stressful occupation. $40 million a year in New South Wales alone. I couldn't get stats for Queensland, so I had to go south of the border. New South Wales teachers claim up to $40 million in stress payments every year. And they also lost 600 working hours through stress. Ten years ago, 20% of Australian adults experienced mental illness. Now it's 46%. That's, that's a dramatic increase in 10 years. 25% of Australians experience depression, and that's increased 5% in the last 10 years. Depression is the leading cause of non-fatal disability in Australia, and it's not usually hereditary. The, the, the economy is, has costs of $20 billion annually, and it costs the community $900 million each year in treatment costs. People are struggling, folks. People in our community are struggling. Eight Australians will kill themselves today. That's incredible. Even though we live in an age where, like never before, we have the power to imagine and create a life that is good and fulfilling and satisfying, even when we have that power, it, it seems like people are unable to break free from their inner struggles, almost incapable of living in freedom. And all of you would know Either you're suffering from anxiety or you know someone who is. And there's no quick fix. There's no just, we'll pray for you and get over it. But as a community of people who follow Jesus, can we take a compassionate posture? Can we try and get some empathy 
and say to people who are suffering from anxiety, hey, look, the stuff that you're dealing with is actually real. We don't want to estimate the power of these strongholds, these things in people's lives of fear and anxiety and worry and stress and depression. We don't want to underestimate that. They are literal strongholds, legitimate strongholds. But there is a way through this. There is always a way. As God wants to move us from brokenness to wholeness, he will take us through things and bring us out of things and bring us out of strongholds. Yep, that's a reason to get excited. The reason that there's so much anxiety is that people feel powerless to change. They don't know the way forward. The reason we're powerless to change is because it's so easy today to forfeit responsibility for our lives to someone else. It's, it's their fault. It's their fault. Taking responsibility for our lives is, is the number one thing that we need to do if we're suffering from this or we know someone who, who is. Two of my sons, 10 years apart, at their valedictory dinner at Ipswich Grammar School, the, the, the whole cohort, the whole Year 12 cohort, sang a song together. It was a song that, that sort of was representative of their school year. And, and two of them, 10 years apart, chose a song by a Brisbane band called Powderfinger. Anyone heard of Powderfinger? Not enough of you. Not enough of you. You need, you need to get in touch with their music. They are lyrically brilliant. But uh, anyway, they chose this song by Powderfinger called These Days. Some of you might know the song without actually knowing the band. The words say, it's coming round again, the slowly creeping hand of time and its command. Soon enough it comes, settles in its place, its shadow in my face puts pressure in my day. This life, well, it's slipping right through my hands. These days turned out nothing like I had planned. Control is slipping right through my hand. These days turned out nothing like I had planned. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it actually describes life in this current world. The pressure and anxiety that comes at you, and it comes at you at a fearful rate. And I thought to myself, why would boys aged 17, about to leave high school, maybe go to uni, out, go out and into the world, seemingly with the world at their feet, why would they pick a song about stress and pressure and things that they have no control over? Why would they pick that as representative of their lives? But the song really opened up the whole idea of anxiety and and, and depression and suicide was a song by Don McLean that came out in 1972 as a song called Vincent. Now, I went into a record shop when I was in year 12 and I bought this, this song, Vincent, on a 45. It cost me about 50 cents. And, uh, and I thought it was a song about a bloke called Vincent. Yeah, Vince, Vinny. But it, but it actually isn't. It's a song about the post-impressionist Dutch painter, Vincent van Gogh. Say, van Gogh. And his struggle with depression and anxiety and ultimately suicide. And this song really dissects that whole arena of life. All the time he was painting some of the most celebrated artwork ever painted, he was suffering he was going through all of these, these internal disorders. He, was actually, he actually never sold a painting that he painted in his life, and now they cost something like between 60 and 80 million each. So, 
Yeah, so no wonder he was depressed. <laughs> but he had frequent episodes of depression and, and paralyzing anxiety and eventually killed himself on his 37th birthday. The song starts out, Starry, Starry Night. Some of you know it now, don't you? Paint your palette blue and grey. Look out on a summer's day with eyes that know the darkness in my soul. Don McLean really, really captured it. And the chorus says, Now I understand what you tried to say to me and how you suffered for your sanity and how you tried to set them free. But it talks about the artist's struggle with depression and anxiety until finally when no hope was left in sight on that starry, starry night, you took your life as lovers often do. And that really opened up something to me. I, I didn't actually know at the age of 11 that, that people thought suicide was an option. But now, eight Australians every day, all of my kids know someone who has committed suicide, whether it be from school or a sporting club they played in. All of them know someone, at least one, who has committed suicide. Some of these kids, it happened before they left school. It's terrible. terrible. Two boys from a, a, a very um, upmarket Brisbane college killed themselves because they didn't get the OP that they thought they should get. That's so sad. There's a large number of people who are struggling with an overwhelming sense of anxiety and stress. And some of that comes because they're just disconnected. They're lonely. They're out there on their own. They live in families, but they're lonely because they don't feel connected to anyone. They live with other people, but they're lonely. People suffer breakdowns. And when you, have you noticed that when people suffer breakdowns, it, it brings out the very worst in them? The very worst of them takes over. It's not the best of them. It's like breakdowns traumatise the best of you so that only the worst of you is left. It seems like when people break down... It, there's, there's just no way back for them. And sadly, so many people in our city are in that situation until finally it's like they experience the starry, starry night when no hope was left in sight and find no reason to live another day. So how do we get out of this? Let's look at the Bible. The, the, the scriptures are not silent on this matter. There's a lot of tactical information here, things that we can form a strategy with. It's like that God knew the kind of society that we would live in, the kind of pressures that we would face, the kind of pressures that our, our friends would face, and he edited the Bible accordingly. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's a familiar passage, but in this version it might not seem familiar. It's, uh, it's really brought out, it's the mirror Bible, and it, it brings out levels of meaning. And we'll start... 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. It says, The fact that we are living in a physical world, in human bodies of flesh, does not mean that we engage ourselves in fortat strategies, like retaliation of the politics of the day. The dynamic of our strategy is revealed in God's ability to disengage mindsets and perceptions that have held people captive in pseudo-fortresses for centuries. Verse 5, every lofty idea and argument positioned against the knowledge of God is cast down and exposed to be a mere invention of our own imagination. We arrest every thought that could possibly trigger an opposing threat to our redeemed identity and innocence at spear point. 
The calibre of our weapon is empowered by the revelation of the ultimate consequence of the obedience of Christ. The real battle here is, is within. It's a fight. It's not a negative fight. It's a fight for peace. It's a fight for hope versus despair. It's a fight for a future rather than a past. It's a hackneyed old cliche, but this is worth fighting for. Worry isn't based in reality, but it does impact our reality. One of the strangest things about being a human is that that sometimes the things that aren't real have a bigger effect on our lives than the things that are real. Our memories impact the way we live our lives, but it's not just our memories because we don't remember everything about our lives. It's the memories we choose. It's not our memories that haunt us. It's the memories that we choose that haunt us. Can you see that? It's the same thing with fear and anxiety. Fear is really based in that which is not real. Worry is about something that you're expecting might happen that may never happen. The problem is that we're trying to control what is outside of our control. When we take control of the things we can control, we actually become more powerful. Peace requires us both to take control and relinquish control. When a person worries, they're actually exercising faith in reverse. They're projecting a future that doesn't exist and assuming the worst outcome. So when you're anxious, you're really worried about something that is uncertain. Anxiety is based in multiple possible negative outcomes. Anxiety is a disproportionate response to an overwhelming sense that life is out of control. So why are you anxious? Why are you anxious? Because you're human. We're human. That's what happens to us. If you're imagining your future and you can assume that your future is good, you don't worry. You're excited. You can't wait. It's different, isn't it? When you think about your life and you think about how good things are, you're not that anxious. If you're in the middle of uncertainty, but you can frame it like, I don't know what's happening, but I know it's going to be good. Can you, can you see that that would help? You don't feel anxious. Anxiety and worry happen when you assume the worst-case scenario for your life. We experience anxiety when a number of things, an unidentified number of things, come at us, they're out of our control, and we assume that it's going to just turn out bad. But what if we assumed it was going to just all work out and turn out great? That is why we arrest every thought that could possibly trigger an opposing threat to our redeemed identity, like that verse said. Go on. See yourself arresting an opposing thought at spear point. Get a visual. Imagine that. Um, yeah, here's this thought that is detrimental to me, and I'm going to just arrest it at spear point and give it a poke and move it along. Yeah. So you see, hope can only exist in the future. You, you can't actually hope for a better past. You can't hope for a better 2005 because, or whatever year that might have been bad for you. You can't hope for a better year. Hope, when hope facing, faces backwards, it presents as regret. So sometimes when a person is experiencing depression, they're carrying with them a default assumption that they don't know is shaping their lives, that tomorrow is going to be the same or worse than today. People aren't depressed because of their past. They're, they're depressed because they think their future is going to be the same as their past. 
That's why we apprehend every thought. Then we're determined to make one positive choice. And every time we make one positive choice, a 1% move towards God, that begins to chip away at the past that holds us. Every time. When you make right choices, right decisions, you establish patterns that interrupt the momentum of the past. And you've got to remember that sometimes you're anxious and depressed because of the choices that other people have made. It's not your fault. It's out of your control. You don't have a choice about who were your parents and you don't have a choice about the way you grew up. There's so many people that were injured and violated and neglected while they were young and they carry forward real pain. But we have to understand that bitterness is actually a way of covering pain. When you feel bitter, you're not feeling the pain. It's kind of a crude form of, of self-medication in the worst way. The problem is that when you're bitter, you're still under the power of whoever you're bitter with. You're actually under their power. And we choose to give them power to the very people who should never have power over our lives. That's what bitterness does. The reason we forgive is that we cut off any power that people who have offended us or wounded us or injured us have in our lives. Peace doesn't come when you finally have control in your life. Peace comes when you no longer need control. It sounds simple, but it can be liberating. When someone in your world does something that upsets you, if it's against you personally, you need to have a conversation with them. You need to, you need to talk to them. But if it's something you have no control over, when you feel that anger starting to rise, when you've seen somebody post something on Facebook that offends you, I've got to attack, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to respond, I've got to post, I've got to reply. No, you don't. Let it go. Let it go. You can't control another person's response. You can only control your response. They're, doing, they're saying, can you control this? I'm saying, no, just leave it here. Leave it here. God can work it out. Nip unbelief in the bud. Arrest that thought at spear point. You're allowing the renewal of your mind when you do that. Recalibration of the default settings of your mind. Let's have a look at another verse, more, more tactical stuff. Philippians 4 verse 6 says this, Let no anxiety about anything distract you. Rather, translate moments into prayerful worship and soak your requests in gratitude before God. Worship is essential in the process of healing. Worship takes on a different level when you're suffering from anxiety or stress or, or depression. What it actually does it is it creates a shift of responsibility. When you recognise God, when you worship him for who he is, you're actually saying you're the one who's responsible for this, who takes responsibility for managing this in my life and not me. That's, it's, it's unspoken, but that's actually what it translates, how it translates. That's what it communicates. God, you are the one who is responsible. You are the one who works things out. You are the one who can do this in my life. See, it's not just about singing. It's about living that way so that all the while we're handing over responsibility to God for what's happening in our day. But So let your definition of worship shift from singing to living because when you're in here, you have good music and good singers and 
That's not supposed to be the end of worship. It's supposed to be the beginning. Your soul can be singing all the time. You can keep realigning your internal journey to go, yep, this is bigger than me, but it's not my responsibility. Let's keep going with Philippians. Skip a verse and we'll go to Philippians 4 verse 8. It says this, Now let this be your conclusive reasoning. Consider that which is true about everyone as evidenced in Christ. Live overwhelmed by God's opinion of you. Acquaint yourselves with the revelation of righteousness. Realize God's likeness in you. Make it your business to declare mankind's redeemed innocence. Think friendship. Discover how famous everyone is in the light of the gospel. Mankind is in God's limelight. Ponder how elevated you are in Christ. Study stories that celebrate life. This is a verse that pushes us to look at life through a particular lens, to see and imagine a good outcome. When situations don't go our way, can we say, God will work this out for good? He'll do that. This is, this, is that, this is that verse that in other translations, whatsoever thing is true, whatsoever thing is pure, think on those things. That's that same verse, just translated a different way. To dwell on the better, to dwell on superior things, study stories that celebrate life. Yeah, back when Brett normally sitting on the front row down there, but he's down at Collingwood Park at the moment, but when he was about nine years old, me and him, we used to, we used to go every Saturday afternoon and we used to run in the, uh, the QAA cross-country competition. We'd, it was the same time every week, but it was a different venue. And one day, I'm driving, Brett's race was always the first because he was an under 10 little guy, and that, so he, he, his race was always the first, and we'd drive there straight from his hockey game, and we'd get there just a bit before 2 o'clock, and he'd have time to get ready and run, run his race. But it was at Mount Cotton this day, and you know, I, I knew how to get there, I thought, and, and, and the time for his race passed by while we were still driving there, and uh, he didn't get upset very often, but he was this time, he was fuming at me and really mad and you know he's just this little bloke there and you know he's dad just stuffed it up you know and uh anyway so when I got there I said well do you want to run the under 12 race and he said no no I don't but anyway we missed that one as well but um and so I thought oh you can well maybe you're just gonna have to sit this one out but I thought no I'll, I'll go to our I had an idea and I went to our club captain and I said is there any rule against him running in the men's race and he said, no, no, but he's nine. <laughs> and, um, and his race was normally like one kilometre. The men's short course was like four kilometres. And he said, no, no, there isn't, but he might as well run and get the points. You know, so, so we put him in. We put him in. And so me and Brett lined up in the same race. And, um, and you know, he's this high and I'm this high. And anyway, I said to him, mate, I'm not going to run with you. I'm going I'm to get the best result for myself, so you're on your own. You know, parenthood at its best. So anyway, anyway, the gun goes off and and I race off and I don't see him. You know, it's sort of cross country, so it's through mud, you know, minefields, alligators, hand grenades, that sort of stuff. And and four kilometres later, I'm I'm finished and, um, you know, I I go and sit down, take my spikes off and then I come back. And I notice as I finish that, that every person... Who's at, who's at the events, like a couple of hundred people, are lining the course. And I, I went over and I said, what's going on? And this guy says to me, some kid's out there running with the men. You know? <laughs> anyway, anyway he, he comes in 
It, like, it comes down, everybody gets home and there's two runners still out there and they come around the corner. It's, it's Brett and an old guy. And, and, and Brett puts in his best sprint, but he doesn't make it. And, and the old guy hangs on and, and, and gets second last place. So Brett is last. But the crowd were going nuts. They were just roaring for him, roaring for him. Women were weeping. I kid you not. You know, this little guy, his legs were going, but, but he just couldn't make it. And, and he could have thought, I came last. I came last. But he got out of the car and we got home. Mum, I ran with the men. He didn't focus on the bad bit. He focused on the good bit. It's a shift of perspective to dwell on the superior things, to study stories that celebrate life. Do you get it? Okay, we're going to just roll into a, a, a scripture that Jesus um, spoke, a, a, a very sort of complicated uh, sort of a, a theme that he took, but let's have a look at it anyway. Matthew eleven twenty eight says this, Come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's a yoke? You, know, you don't hear many people say, I'm going down to Bunnings to pick up a yoke. You know, two yokes, actually, yeah. yeah. What a yoke was, it's, a, it's actually a farming implement. It was a, a piece of carved wood that was used to actually unite two bullocks or oxen, they called them in those days, and it fitted to their necks and it, and it joined them together so they could be harnessed for useful work on, on the farm. In, um, in, in many instances, it was, it was cattle. You know, they, they used them to pull ploughs and that sort of thing. But yoke comes from the Greek word zugos and it actually has a threefold meaning. And as we look at each one of these meanings, I think there's some stuff in here that might help us. The threefold meaning is it means balance, service, and connection. What the yoke did was it balanced, it balanced out the pulling power of these two animals and, and who, were, who were actually involved in service and it connected them together and also connected them to the person who was driving the plough or, or the, the cart or whatever it was. So let's just deal with each one of these briefly. This is, this is advice that, that works even if you're not depressed or anxious, even if you're on top of the world. These three things will register with you. The first one, balance. Let's have a look. This is, this is looking after yourself. It, it's diet, it's exercise, it's sleep, it's maintaining the equilibrium of life. Choosing what you put your emotional energy into. Maybe not bun fights on Facebook. It's being accountable for yourselves. There's, there's a story in the Old Testament in the book of, of 1 Kings about Elijah. Now, as far as good days in God goes, Elijah probably had the best of them. He was, he was a prophet and he came up against these prophets of an occult god, Baal. And he took them on in a, in a head-to-head sort of stoush. And, and anyway, they both tried to call fire down from heaven on a particular offering. And the prophets of Baal, of course, couldn't. And Elijah gave them a, a really good sledging about it too as well on the way. But then he did. He called fire down from heaven and it, he poured water on the offering first. But then he called fire down and it, it, you know, it all burned up and he was obviously 
the victor and God was better than Baal and that's how it went. Then, then he took a sword and he killed all the prophets. Don't know where that is in, in, the, in gifts of the spirit, but anyway, he, he actually kills all the prophets and then, then he prophesies that it's going to rain when there's only a little cloud on the horizon and it does rain and then he actually outruns a chariot. So in terms of the prophetic miraculous, it was a good day. But anyway, he finds out that the queen wants to kill him and he goes straight into depression and anxiety and he takes off and he goes and hides under a juniper bush for want of a better place to hide and he hides under there and and God sends an angel and the angel wakes him up and says and cooks him some bread to eat. That even in that, even in that state, even when he's on the run, God is worried about his balanced life, doing the right things, eating and, and, and getting the right nutrition into him. And so anyway, what he does is he eats it and he goes back to sleep. Has that ever been you? I'm going to eat the donuts and then just go back to bed, you know. <laughs> so that's what he does. He eats the bread, he goes back to sleep, but the, the angel wakes him up and keeps him on track. And it must have been good bread because his journey was in like 40 days and 40 nights. And it doesn't say he ate again. So but the point is, that, that we need to be concerned with the balance of our lives, maintaining that equilibrium, doing the right thing, treating ourselves well. It's a tender story. The angel cooks his bread for him but, and then pushes him to keep going, to keep on track. So that's balance. We've got to maintain a balance, equilibrium. The next thing is, is service. There's a paradox here between service and greatness. There's an idea that the two are mutually exclusive, that if you want to be great, then you, you can't be a servant. But Jesus said, just Jesus redefined greatness. He didn't say it was wrong to be great, wrong to want to be great. He just redefined what it was. He said it's, it's serving. So that's how that works out. So, so when, when we think about balance and serving, you know, we often think, oh, gee, I'm, you know, I'm run down, I'm stressed, I, you know, I better... Uh, I won't, go, I won't go to church this weekend. I'll ring up someone else and take my place on the roster. Serving is actually a, a part of restoration. You can, re, you can serve your way into more wholeness. Serving, it, it actually extracts something from you. It extracts cooperation with other people and doing something for someone other than yourself. So it shifts the focus. That's why serving is, is a part of this, this yoke of Jesus. And remember, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not going to kill you. The third thing is, is connection. Connection is, is so important. It's so important that we, have, that we do our Christianity with people who are our peers. We do, them, we do our, our, our life with people who we can share it with. Make a decision to share your life. If you're not in a connect group, I heartily recommend being in one. That way you can come to a place and unload, you can get friends, you can get support. And it's a, it's a different sort of thing to the connection that you've probably grown up with, like at, at, at school and in your job and that sort of thing, which is connection based on performance. People like you if you do the right thing. This is a different... You know, come to a, a connect group and people like you anyway. You know, whether, you, whether you're a Gumby or... Yeah, a mongrel or whatever you think you might be, you, know, you still get loved. You know? that's, that's the good part about it. 
all throughout scripture is this narrative of redemption and our stories are fuel for someone else's journey and their stories are fuel for your journey um speaking of bringing that back and linking it to depression just as we close i have a, i have a friend who who actually shared with me doesn't go to this church doesn't go to any church shared with me that he suffers from depression and anxiety at a particular time of the year it, it sort of links back to his childhood and and when he when he said that to me i didn't i didn't say anything at the time we just kept going our conversation I put a little reminder in my phone ring and and at that particular time of the year and 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 it was really good the first time i rang him i, I rang him at this time and, it, and he, he says i know why you're ringing me and and i thought that's a win that's a win. What, what a precious moment of human connection. I, I felt so privileged to be a part of that, to be, to be part of this guy's restoration, even though he wasn't thinking about restoration. He was just thinking about how do I get over this. And we can be a part of other people's journey from brokenness to wholeness. If you're not in a connect group, I implore you. There are people waiting to be your community, determined to share your life. Let's bring it down to human-to-human contact. So there's balance, there's service, and there's connection. It's the yoke of Jesus. It's what he recommended to us to bring to, when we're burdened and, and, and beaten down and suffering from the travel stains of life it's it's something that he recommended to take his yoke upon you and do those three things balance service and connection thank you for listening to this podcast